From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Fecal incontinence is embarrassing, and it's difficult to talk about, but there are treatments that can improve your quality of life. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. Oftentimes, diet can be a contributor or a culprit. There are some dietary factors such as um, the ingestion of poorly absorbable sugars, excessive amounts of high fructose corn syrup, which will create large osmotic load for your gut that's too much for the body to absorb. Also on the program, the dangers of excess belly fat. And can push-ups predict your future? All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Being unable to control bowel movements, called fecal incontinence, is unfortunately a fairly common problem as people age. It is more common among women than men. What causes it, and what options are there for treatment? Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Jean Fox. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Fox. Thank you. Good morning, Tom and Tracy. It's great to be here. Thank you. Always nice to see you. So not the most pleasant subject, but fecal incontinence probably apparently more common than most of us know or realize? Yes, it is. It's more common than most of us know or realize, and it's something that people are not comfortable talking about. So even when somebody has a longstanding relationship with a physician, it might be something that they're hesitant to bring up, and they might skirt around the issue and refer to it as diarrhea or bowel trouble or by some other name because it's so difficult and embarrassing to talk about. Do we know why it affects women more often than men? Well, the thought is that in, it, um, it may affect women more than men in part because some of the problem of fecal incontinence is due to obstetric trauma. But there may also be selection bias in that women are also more likely than men to seek medical treatment for a variety of medical conditions. Mm-hmm. And true for every, yeah, you're right. Well, but, and that's even worse then, because if, if men and women have it equally, then men just aren't coming in to see their doctors and suffering with this in silence. And I don't think that they have it equally, but I think, yes, men are probably more likely to suffer quietly or be hesitant to bring it up unless um, somebody brings it up to them. And their wife takes them into the doctor. You need to talk to your doctor about this. Their wife might bring it up. Well, because it definitely affects your quality of life. It absolutely does. And many of my patients will say that they are hesitant to go on trips they're hesitant to fly in an airplane. Um, they're hesitant to go to family or social gatherings because of the worry about having an accident. Is it always older people, or is all are all ages affected? I'd say that for a variety of reasons, it may be more common as we age, but we we do see it in young folks as well. Now, when it comes to uh, incontinence, there are a couple of different types. Is that true also for fecal incontinence? I'm, and urinary incontinence, more than one type, true also for yes, fecal? Yes, absolutely, Tom. 
And what are those? So there's urge fecal incontinence where you have the urge to go, but you just can't hold it and get to the bathroom in time. And then there's passive fecal incontinence, which is fecal incontinence that might occur more passively. You don't have the urge. It can um, occur at nighttime when you're asleep, or sometimes it may occur during the daytime, and you might not know it's occurred until you feel a, a wetness in your um, clothing or something of that nature. And, and so one is uh, urge incontinence, just like there is urinary urge incontinence, but the other one um, they call uh, apparently passive incontinence, yeah. did you say? And then, but, and that's because of lack of sensation. Where does that come from? Why is that? So that can come from a variety of different things. It can come from a neurologic injury, such as a spinal cord injury, or um, it can come from a variety of neurologic diseases, such as multiple sclerosis or neuropathy of any cause. It can come from diabetes, long-standing diabetes, fecal incontinence can often be a complication of long-standing diabetes, and it's of the passive nature. And again, it's due to nerve damage, similar to how you might think of a, any other neuropathy associated okay. with diabetes. Is one more common than the other? I don't know that. Okay. Um, I don't know that. I'd say that we might see more people in the clinic with urge incontinence. Okay. But oftentimes, the, the kind of the confounding thing is people can have components of both. Mm. So that the same person might present with components of both. Do you always, are you always able to figure out what the cause is? Well, the first thing we do is we take a good dietary history because oftentimes diet can be a contributor or a culprit. There are some dietary factors such as um, the ingestion of poorly absorbable sugars um, or sugar substitutes. Sugar substitutes, yeah. Yeah, like um, excessive amounts of high fructose corn syrup, which will create a um, large osmotic load for your gut that's too too much for the body to absorb, and that can produce a lot of watery stool and urgency. Sometimes um, excessive caffeine intake can play a role. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I had never heard that before, that too much caffeine can cause fecal incontinence or contribute to it. Yeah. Do folks with fecal incontinence, though, have probably figured out what what food and drink affects their digestive system? You know, you might be surprised, Tracy. I can say that folks spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's the culprit and Mm -hmm. what's going on with their diet and might try eliminating certain things. Certain things people are very good at figuring out, such as dairy. Mm -hmm. People know that dairy is an issue. People may not realize that caffeine is an issue. The other big culprit is soda. That people are drinking excessive amounts of soda pop, whether it's um, diet soda or regular soda, that can contribute, and people aren't always good about figuring that out. Uh, one of the uh, other causes on the list was a hardened stool that collects in the rectum impacted yes. stool. Do you see that fairly frequently? So we do see that a fair amount, and sometimes we will see um, people who have a history of constipation. And then they have, they've had constipation for many years. They kind of gotten used to the constipation and really have thought of that as being their normal. And then they'll come in with a complaint of diarrhea. And what's actually happening is they're experiencing leakage of loose 
stool around a hardened stool, and that can lead to seepage or fecal incontinence. Can you figure that out on a, a di- on a digital exam, yes, rectal exam? Yes, you can usually figure that on a, out on a rectal exam. And then you just disimpact the stool mechanically? Is yes, it? and then the important thing is to get people on a good bowel regimen so that their constipation is well addressed so that that doesn't happen to them again. And what about patients with uh, diarrhea? I, I would think that they would be more prone to fecal incontinence if you have generally loose stools. That's absolutely true. And um, oftentimes when people present with diarrhea, we go through looking at their diet, looking at their past surgical history. Um, and one of the mainstays of therapy then is to try to help them with um, solidifying the stool. And oftentimes when people are having fecal incontinence for liquid stool, if you can simply solidify and bulk up their stool, it gives them much better control. Is there any place in here that things like inflammatory diseases like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, any of that plays into this problem? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. When you're thinking about inflammatory bowel disease, there are more than one thing going on that can contribute to fecal incontinence. Um, One is the liquid stool itself, and then the second is there can be inflammation in the rectum, which causes um, a feeling of fullness or discomfort in the rectum. All right, fecal incontinence, a difficult problem for, unfortunately, a fair number of seasoned citizens. There are two types, multiple causes. Our guest is an expert gastroenterologist, Dr. Gene Fox. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about all of the various treatment options that there are for fecal incontinence and also tell you about uh, two or three clinical trials that are going on at the Mayo Clinic right now. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with gastroenterologist Dr. Jean Fox, and our topic is fecal incontinence. We've talked about what causes it, and there are multiple different causes. We've talked about the fact that there are two different types, and now it's important for us to learn what are the treatment options, and let's start with the best thing you've got for it. So... I always start with the basics, and we always talk about diet and what people are ingesting and what their um, what their meal habits are. And um, we try if there's something there that brings up a red flag, we try to modify that. Like sugar substitutes, too much caffeine, too much pop, things like yes, that. Yes, things yeah. like that, absolutely. And um, the other thing that's very, very important to mention, and I don't want to forget that we touched upon a little bit before, fecal incontinence is not really a normal part of aging. So whatever you are, whatever age you are, if you've developed this problem, you really should see your physician and you should have an investigation and that investigation should include colon imaging. Now, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, there are certain people who may not know, uh, even as they age, that they are um, intolerant to uh, to lactose and fructose. How do you find that out? And is that sometimes a cause? So that can sometimes be a cause. And um, so oftentimes we might do a breath test 
to help determine breath? if they're... B-R-E-A-T-H? A breath test. Breath test. Yes, really? a breath hydrogen test with either a fructose or a lactose load to try to determine if those are part of the problem. And if the te- what happens if the test is positive? If the test is positive, often patient will have symptoms during the test of bloating and cramping, oh, and okay. the... Um, Breath hydrogen excretion is measured, and if uh, breath hydrogen reaches a certain peak during a short period of time, then we know that the patient is malabsorbing that sugar. Now, that said, I'll give a caveat because the load in that test, the sugar load in that test, is much higher than most people might get in one serving of a food containing fructose or lactose. So it doesn't always give us the answer. If it's negative, we've been able to rule it out. If it's positive, it's worth a trial of eliminating that that sugar from the diet and seeing if things improve. All right, what about hardened stool and constipation? Um, fiber important? And is over-the-counter fiber, does it work pretty well? So especially for people who alternate between diarrhea and constipation, um, we can try fiber. It doesn't, fiber doesn't make sense because if you're trying to stop diarrhea, you'd think that fiber would increase diarrhea. Well, that's a good point, and you, uh, many people have that false belief, Tracy, you're not alone. But the issue is sometimes if, the, if people have stools that are alternating in consistency and sometimes hard and sometimes loose, fiber can kind of even it out a bit. And if somebody's tending more towards loose stools or diarrhea and they're going to try fiber, I tend to have them take it with less fluid. And so sometimes that can be helpful. But we have several tests available here at Mayo Clinic to help determine causes of diarrhea, and about 30% of patients with diarrhea-predominant irritable bowel will malabsorb bile acids. And so we can test the stool for that with a 48-hour collection and allow us to determine whether or not that person might respond to a bile acid binder like cholecephalam. That seems like a pretty simple fix, actually, if 30% of the people... Wow. Okay, if uh, diarrhea is a problem, are the -the over-the-counter anti-diarrheals on the market, are they decent? They are, and they can be quite helpful. And which ones do you recommend specifically? Specifically, I would recommend loperamide. And what's the name that we would recognize? Amodium. Amodium, all right. a couple of other treatment options that we've heard about and want to ask you, and one is biofeedback. Is that is that effective, and, and what exactly is involved? So biofeedback involves working with a physical therapist with some um, electrodes or sensors in the rectal and perianal area to measure muscle tension and help with strengthening exercises. And also there can be um, help with urge suppression so that if somebody has the urge, they're able to suppress it. It's less effective in people who have passive fecal incontinence, and we generally would not send patients who have a significant neurologic condition to biofeedback, but for patients with 
um, urge and with muscle weakness in that area can be helpful. And what about surgery, surgical options? So surgery for fecal incontinence has been um, something that's been explored for decades. And we know that in younger women who've recently sustained an obstetric injury, surgery can be quite effective. You mean if there's a tear in the muscle around the anus? Yes, related to childbirth. Then surgery can be effective. Later in life, um, for women who may have sustained an injury during their childbearing years, surgery is not effective. And that's probably for a number of reasons, one being muscle atrophy, the other being Shrinkage. nerve degeneration. Um, but but they're not, they're, they're, it's not effective later in life. And, and we also know that there are good operations for uh, rectocele and rectal prolapse, right? Yes, if there those are. are the, uh, those are the issues. Those problems can be solved surgically. Yes. Otherwise, it's difficult. And, and as a last resort, I presume colostomy, if uh, all else fails and they can't control their stools at all. Do you ever yeah. do that? We do that. We do that. And often it's for people. People who have a significant a neurologic injury or people who have um, a sphincter injury and weak muscles who are just really ready to be done with it. And, yeah. you know, and it's, had it, enough. it solves the yeah. problem. It does solve the problem. It's a big step and not everybody's ready to take it. What about the patients, though, that hear you say, and then they think, oh, I don't want to go mess with this. I can't even bear to start talking about it with somebody. There is a colostomy in my future. I know it. What would you say to the patients? I would say don't let embarrassment keep you from discussing the situation with your doctor. So let's talk about it. I know you've got some clinical clinical trials going on at Mayo. Tell us about those. So there are three clinical trials going on at Mayo right now for um, patients with fecal incontinence. And um, two of the trials involve a medical device um, with or without biofeedback. And the third trial is a pharmaceutical trial. And if people are interested in finding out more about that trial, I can leave you with the name and phone number of our study coordinator who can help connect them. Let's give that number right now. That is for Kelly, and the phone number is 507-255-6802. So essentially what these are are for people who have tried multiple other modalities for, for treating this condition and it hasn't helped. So these are trials of different things that may help them. Yes. All right, 507-255-6802. It's Kelly. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Jean Fox. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure to be here. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, why carrying excess fat in the midsection is a health concern for women and men. And can push-ups predict your future health? All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams. Right after this. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Every year, millions of people in the U.S. get the flu. Many recover, but some need to be hospitalized. And unfortunately, every year, some people die of flu-related complications. Dr. Tina Arden, a Mayo Clinic family medicine specialist, says the flu vaccine is the best defense against seasonal flu, and everyone who's able to get one should do so. Now, the seasonal flu is a virus that attacks your respiratory system. Dr. Arden says younger children and older adults definitely can get more sick from the flu, and patients who are already sick with other chronic conditions or are undergoing chemotherapy are more likely to have complications. Now, complications include bronchitis, pneumonia, and heart problems. Again, she says the vaccine for influenza is one of the best defenses we have. Some people don't get the flu vaccine because they think it could cause the flu. She says the flu vaccine is what we call a dead vaccine. You can't get the flu from a flu shot. Now, flu mist, while safe for most people, contains a weakened form of the virus, so people with certain conditions should get a flu shot instead. Dr. Arden stresses that everyone who can get it should get it. It takes two weeks for the vaccine to work, so get your flu shot now. And in other news, meat. Is it okay to eat it when it comes to heart health or not? Red meat consumption has long been associated with increased risk of diseases, such as heart attack and stroke. A new study suggests that meat may not be so bad after all. Nevertheless, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, says that limiting red meat in your diet is still important for heart health. He says cutting down on meat consumption has clearly been shown in multiple, multiple studies to be helpful. He says meat, especially red meat and processed meat, is associated with increased risk of many health issues, including heart attack and stroke, and that everybody from the World Health Organization to the American Cancer Society has said, don't eat so much processed meats, don't eat so much red meat. People who eat foods based on the Mediterranean diet, which is rich in whole grains, veggies, fruits, fish, and olive oil, have a reduced risk of many health issues. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Excess belly fat poses higher health risks for some women who are of normal weight. That's right. A new study adds to the evidence that belly fat is dangerous. Researchers at the University of Iowa who studied more than 150,000 women say postmenopausal women of normal weight are at increased risk of death from heart disease and cancer if they have excess abdominal fat. Here to discuss is a Mayo Clinic endocrinologist at Mayo Clinic's Menopause and Women's Sexual Health Clinic, Dr. Ekta Kapoor. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kapoor. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Dr. Kapoor. So uh, where you carry your excess weight is more important than how much you weigh? Potentially. So is this just is this for all women or just postmenopausal women? This is, as a matter of fact, true for men and women alike. So it's very well established that uh, central body fat has adverse metabolic consequences, meaning increased risk of high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease. But it is a more acute and pronounced issue for postmenopausal women because uh, postmenopausal women at the same so-called body mask index compared to one who's premenopausal is more likely to have central body fat because she loses muscle mass after menopause. So she's more at risk for having central body fat after menopause. Is central body fat a more medical way of saying a pot belly? 
kind of. <laughs> I think that in America we call it a pot belly because then that makes it cuter. I don't understand it. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything cute about it, but uh, you know, it's so called the apple distribution of body fat compared to pears who tend to carry more of their body fat in their lower half of the body. And that is not as dangerous if you have fat in your thighs, for it, example. Having excess body fat is dangerous, period, but lower body fat is more protective in the sense that it confers a much lower risk to a perhaps even a negligible risk of having things like high blood pressure and high and diabetes. So being overweight, whether you're a man or you're a woman or whether you're postmenopausal, does increase your risk uh, for death from several different diseases. It does, but then again, it's very important as to where that excess body fat is. If you look at the results from this study alone, people who were overweight or obese, and if they are women, and they did not have central obesity, they were in fact not at increased risk of dying. Their risk of dying was even lower than women with normal weight and no central obesity. So I think it is becoming more and more clear that where you carry your body fat is kind of the most important parameter to consider. How many women are we talking? So this is a large study with a long follow-up. So 156,000 women who were initially enrolled in the Women's Health Initiative, the so-called WHI study. They were followed for a period of about 20 years. And then they classified women as having normal weight, being overweight, and being obese based on BMI, body mass index criteria. And then they subclassified these women as those having no central body fat or having central body fat defined by... uh, base circumference greater than 88 centimeters. So that's how they did it. And what they found is that women who were even of normal weight, if they had central obesity defined by the waist circumference criterion, their risk of dying, and I pause a little because that's a very important finding, their risk of dying is comparable or was comparable to women who were obese and had central obesity. All right, how do you explain this? So how do we explain this? Yes, what it goes to say is that if, let's say, you have two individuals at the same body mass index, one that has more central body fat is more likely to have all the adverse metabolic consequences that I keep talking about, high blood pressure, diabetes, and risk of dying. And the way to look at it is that if somebody is of a normal body weight, but they still have central body fat, what that tells you is that most of their weight or a a large proportion of their weight is going towards the central body fat. In other words, they probably have low muscle mass. They probably have lower fat in the lower half of the body, which both of those are actually protective. Because the way I explain to patients, people who have high muscle mass, muscle is in a sense a powerhouse of the body. It is where a lot of calories are burnt at rest and a lot of calories are obviously burnt when you're exercising. So if you have lower muscle mass, you just burn fewer calories, period. Similarly, if you have lower fat, amount of fat in the lower half of your body, you don't have those protective effects. Because I want to explain it to you this way, lower half of your body is a very efficient fat depot. It does not release the toxic fatty acids into your bloodstream, which the abdominal fat does. And that, we think, is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. One of the things that um, 
I read, and it may have been a quote from you, and it was, where we carry our fat determines our metabolic health. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you just explained? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, For men and women? For men and women. The reason why we make a big deal in postmenopausal women is that, you know, before menopause, if a woman gains weight, the predisposition is for that fat to go into the lower half of the body under the influence of the hormone estrogen. After menopause, as the estrogen levels go down, we lose that protective effect. And majority of the fat goes to the belly area. So I have women in my office who really haven't a change in weight as they've gone through menopause, but they see more belly fat. And the reason there is, they're unfortunately losing muscle mass, but gaining fat here. So their overall body weight or BMI is not really changing, but they are still getting more central body fat. And that's what increases their risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. So uh, do you think it should become standard practice for uh, physicians to measure Waste to do a waist measurement? Absolutely. And you said 88 centimeters. Can mm-hmm. you put that into inches? 35. 35 mm-hmm. inches. Mm-hmm. So anything below that you mm-hmm. think is probably mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Anything above that? Is it potentially is a problem. Potential. So we were just talking in our uh, in our clinic yesterday that you know in our uh, menopause clinic we universally measure the waist circumference, but how often are we actually paying attention to it? And if a, a person has a normal BMI, we don't really look beyond that, which we feel like as a medical community that needs mm-hmm. to change. Mm-hmm. That BMI is not an ideal marker for assessment of body fat stores, not at all, because it tells you nothing about body fat distribution. What if I were to tell you that everyone in my family, men and women have got the same pot belly, Mm -hmm. including Mm -hmm. the thin people, the heavy people. Mm -hmm. Everybody has the same pot belly. So is there family history here? Genetics do play a role in where you carry your body Mm -hmm. fat. So a lot of the things play into it. You're exactly right. Genetics play into it. Hormonal influences, like I shared with you, Mm -hmm. estrogen in your body. Then, you know, if you get obese, after a point, most of that fat is going to go in the central distribution. So you know how much total body fat you have, how you exercise. All of these factors determine where the body fat is distributed. And we should remind our audience that the easiest way to figure out what your BMI is is just go on the Internet, put in your height and weight, and it, and it will tell you. Will tell but you. you're also saying that BMI doesn't matter all that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's body fat. It's central body fat. Exactly. And, you know, for lay people, I'd also say, you know, a highly muscular man out there may have an elevated BMI by standard measurement. Sure. But is that necessarily a bad thing? All right. Now, how can women avoid this problem or solve this problem, especially postmenopausal women? And that's a million-dollar question and mm-hmm. one that comes up in the clinic all the time. Unfortunately, there is no magic solution to it. What I tell my patients is that the rules of the game and the game of weight maintenance and weight loss are just different as we get older. It calls for even better attention to your lifestyle choices, so dietary discretion and maintaining your physical activity or perhaps even taking to the next notch. The one unique thing about postmenopausal women that I tell them is that to maintain their uh, muscle mass, resistance training, because, uh, you know, traditionally the focus used to just be on aerobic training, aerobic exercise, but resistance Excuse me, resistance training is equally, if not more important, for postmenopausal women for the purpose of muscle building. A few weights. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. what you and our producer are doing, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying very hard. Buffed up, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ekta Kapoor is a woman's health expert, and now there is more evidence that even among people with normal weight, our body shape indeed matters. It's not uncommon for women as they age and men to gain weight, especially around the middle, and we now know that belly fat is dangerous. It's mm-hmm. toxic. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be, even if you're fighting your genes, like in your family, I That's guess. right. As you age, it's important to make better dietary choices mm-hmm. and to exercise and become more active, maybe in different ways, like mm-hmm. resistance training. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kapoor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk exercise science. Can push-ups predict your future? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Tracy, if I ask you to drop down right here in the studio and do 20 push-ups, could you do it? Yes. Do you want to challenge me? Is that what you're saying? Could you do 20? Sure. You know, there are not very many people who could do that. Now, whether or not you can or can't do a few push-ups can tell you a lot about your health, believe it or not. That's according to a Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist and human performance researcher, Dr. Mike Joyner, who joins us in studio to explain. It's good to see you again, Dr. Joyner. Always a pleasure, Tracy and Tom. Now, I didn't say that I could do multiple sets of 20 push-ups, <laughs> no, but no, I could do 20. Yeah. <laughs> and how many people in the country can do 20 push-ups? Oh, a small minority. Yeah. A small minority. 10 or 20%, maybe. Oh, I bet even less than that. Is that right? When you take all the age groups, all comers time. So now you're an anesthesiologist, meaning you put people to, to sleep. Correct. So what do you know about push-ups? you got a lab, too. <laughs> Explain to our audience. Well, I'm also a physiologist, and, and I got into medicine because I was interested in exercise physiology. And one of the things we do in exercise physiology is measure oxygen uptake. So people have a mask on. We measure their breathing, measure their blood pressure, measure their heart rate. And when I was a medical student back in Tucson, I walked into the operating rooms at the VA hospital there, and I said, my God, this looks like an exercise test, <laughs> except the patient's asleep. And I realized that the anesthesia is the flip side of exercise physiology because, Tom, in exercise, we worry about how the brain is keeping the body alive and how it's coordinating all these body systems uh, to to keep the oxygen going to the muscles, keep the heart rate in good shape, the blood pressure, and so forth. In anesthesia, we turn those systems off, and the anesthesiologist and the anesthesia care team are the people that really become the patient's brain stem, regulate heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, and so forth. Mm. So it's really the flip side of the same coin. But we still don't know how general anesthesia works, right? Correct. It's crazy. Correct. It I mean, crazy. whoever came up with a drug and gave it to somebody, they went to sleep. I hey, mean, and it works. Yeah. Let's just it, keep doing it. Thank goodness. The Power of One Push-Up is the name of the article in the Atlantic. Correct. What is the power of one push-up? Well, there was a recent study uh, done on some firefighters that showed... Um, followed them for a number of years and showed that individuals who could do more push-ups had better health outcomes over a number of years. Now, you can say, well, maybe these people were healthier and that's why they could do more push-ups, or you could say that they were training harder or so forth. But really, Tracy, the whole idea of a push-up or any other marker of physical strength or physical fitness is that it's highly correlated or highly predictive of your future health. Almost anything you can do, how fast you can get up off the floor. In older people, can they even get out of a chair? Grip strength, a treadmill score, all sorts of things like that are predictive because what people are learning as people get into later middle age and past 65, a lot of the problem is, is frailty. People just become frail. Tom, you saw it in orthopedic surgery. They, they, they slip, they fall, they break something. And frail older people, A, 
don't slip and fall, or not frail, robust, healthy, physically fit, strong older people are much less likely to slip and fall. And if they do, they're better able to recover. So is there anything magic about push-ups? No. Is there anything magic about being robust and vigorous? Yes. Now, the original article in The Atlantic was, uh, you must know him, is it a Dr. Kales, K-A-L-E-S? No, I, 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 I know one of the people farther down the list on the on the articles. Okay, but he said push-up abilities could predict heart disease. True? Correct. So could hand grip strength. So could almost any other marker of general fitness. So there's not anything particularly predictive about push-ups. Per it's se, just, no. It's a measure of your right. what a measure of physical ability. And, Tom, when you get into a large population, all of these things, sort of correlate. The people that are in best shape in one area typically are in the best shape in another area. I think I read once that the the health that you, the health level that you're at when you are 60 is also very predictive of what your next 30 to 40 years Correct. of your life is going to be like. Correct. And so does that have the same thing with the robust health? Yep. And and so again, vigorous fit people in their late 50s and early 60s tend to live a long time. Now, I just saw a new paper out, and it's in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings from the group at Ball State, and they tracked people who went from inactive to active in middle age. And so they saw, and people that remained inactive and people who remained active. And what was most interesting about that is the people who increased their activity increase their exercise and increase their working out and shift it from the low activity, low fitness group to the high fitness group, got the same health benefits of people who were, were very fit when they entered the program. Oh, so you can start later. Correct. <laughs> like retirement? Yeah. Never too late. Never too late. <laughs> One of the things that you've said, you were quoted as saying, is that more than pecs or triceps, push-ups build conscientiousness. What did you mean by that? Well, I, conscientiousness is is kind of an interesting term that describes people's really thinking about the future. Do you see a connection between your current behavior and the future? Do you finish what you start? If you go to the doctor and they say do X, do you do X? Do you follow guidelines? Do you wear your seat belts? And so forth. And and what's interesting is is if you look at people who do regular vigorous exercise, people who are physically active, people who watch their diet, people who don't smoke, there's typically a suite of behaviors that they engage in that show that they see some connection between their current behavior and the future outcome. They're conscientious and about a lot of different things. A lot things. of different things. It's kind of a general skill set. And and one of the arguments has been that, that one thing, the most important thing anybody can do is have a mother that teaches them to pick up, make their bed, yeah. and, and teaches them that there's some outcome between their current behavior and the future and, and a little bit of delayed gratification. Let's talk to the listener who is previously middle-aged and inactive and wants to ramp Correct. up going into the 60s, like we're just talking about, to become more robust, because that definitely is possible. So you can do some push-ups. Go for a walk. Go for a walk. Go for a walk. The first 10 minutes of exercise per day or physical activity is highly beneficial. People think 30 minutes uh, most days of the week, but people get a benefit with as much or as little as 10, 10 minutes a day. And then... You know, you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to get a bunch of fancy equipment. You can certainly do some calisthenics at home. There's a terrific book that you can find uh, on the Internet called the 5BX Program by the Canadian Air Force <laughs> from the late 50s or 60s. And uh, it's really terrific. And, and what happened is is that they noticed the pilots up in the northern air bases 
uh, where there weren't gyms and weren't a lot of facilities were getting out of shape, and they developed a little pamphlet for for a workout program that people could do literally anywhere with no equipment. <laughs> squats, yeah, lunges, squats, yeah, yeah push ups, sit ups, you know, running in place, and sure. so forth. And it was called the Five BX program, and 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 it's fantastic because a it works, b it's not very time um, time demanding. See, you get these beautiful Art Deco late six, late fifties, early sixties pictures and graphs right. that are worth reading because it's cool. you know, and it's almost like a little comic book. <laughs> All right, the power of a push-up. Dr. Mike Joyner is an anesthesiologist and a researcher at Mayo Clinic. So if you can do a few or more push-ups, you can do 20. It tells a lot about your overall health. You're going to live forever. Push-up abilities can indeed be a predictor of heart and blood vessel disease. And, and what kills more Americans than anything else? Heart, heart disease. disease. You bet. Guess it's time to get fit it for is. all of us, and there is a connection, <laughs> indeed, between what you do, what, how you live, and what will happen to you later, and how long you live. And by the way, the name of the book is the Five BX Program. Yeah, and you should be able to find a PDF of it online. It's 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 again from the Canadian Air Force, Royal Canadian Air Force, in the late fifties or early sixties. Dr. Michael Joyner, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Tom. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.